Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, first time in a really long time, we are so glad to have you. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and you make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Uh, this service is, is pretty full. And so if you're someone who likes to be able to uh, spread your legs out a little bit more, get a little bit more space, elbow room, then we have a little bit more room in our 845 service. And then we have a decent amount of room in our 1130 service. And going to one of those, if it works for you, is a simple way that you can help us out and get some more room for yourself. So today we are excited because we are, we are launching the fall. I know that's weird to say when it's 147 outside, but we are <laughs> manifesting the fall, the launch of the fall with this brand new series, a series we're very excited about. The series is called You Are Not Your Own. And we got a lot to cover today, and so we're just going to jump right in. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, that's, that's okay. We'll have it up here for you on the screen. We're going to read verses 1 through a little bit of verse 4. It's an iconic story about Father Abraham and his call. This call that kind of sets in motion the story of Scripture proper. So Genesis 12, 1 through the first half of verse 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. So, uh, all right, show of hands. How many of you have seen the original Lion King? The OG version, right? Oh, yeah. Now, in many ways, The Lion King was the defining movie of my childhood. I don't remember if it was the first movie that I actually saw in theater, but it was the first movie that I remember seeing in theater because it was such a monumental experience. Man, I remember we were waiting for weeks to get to go to it. We show up really early, standing in this long line for tickets at the Lufkin Mall in Deep East, Texas. We get this big tub of popcorn. The opening scene comes on. And you remember the open scene, sunrise over the Serengeti, the circle of life starts playing, baby, and I was all in. But then, remember what happened, right? Then Mufasa died. Yeah. And that, that was when I became a man. (laughs) Nine years old, July 1994. Y'all, in my humble opinion, Mufasa's death is the single most traumatic moment in all of cinematic history. And if you can watch Mufasa die without tearing up a little bit, then man, you're probably a serial killer. I'm just telling you, if you're ever watching Lion King with somebody, Mufasa dies and they're not crying a little bit, then you need to get up out of there because if their tear ducts are dry, you're about to die, okay? That could save your life one day. I'm serious. Get out, get out. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, about 20 years later, uh, another movie would capture our collective cultural imagination the way that Lion King once had for my generation. And that movie was, of course, any guesses? Frozen. Anybody seen Frozen? Ah, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Anytime you're having one of those days where everybody on planet Earth is annoying you, you know the days I'm talking about? Some of you having one right now, today. If you ever have one of those days, then here's what you do. You just hop in your car. You crank up, let it go to about 100 decibels, okay? 100 decibels. Let's hit it there. Oh, come on now. Ah! 
And in about three minutes and 43 seconds, everything in your life is going to be a little bit more. Okay, just got to let it go. Now, one of the main reasons why we all love the Lion King and Frozen is that they're both manifestations of this story that we might call the hero's journey. The hero's journey. We all know this story. Okay, here's the basic plot. All is well. All right, wherever the setting is, all is well. But then something happens. Something terrible and or unforeseen. And this sets in motion this journey that the hero has to go on to make everything right and become the hero. We all love this story. We've been telling it for thousands of years. But what's really interesting is the way in which the hero's journey, the story of it, is tweaked a little bit over time in order to meet and express the needs of different people living in different times. All right, and we'll take uh, The Lion King and Frozen as an example here because they're different takes on the hero's journey illustrate well a very important and consequential shift that's been happening in our culture for a while but has really accelerated over the last 20 to 30 years. So in The Lion King, the tragedy that sets the journey in motion is what? Well, it's Mufasa's death and then the guilt that Simba feels over Mufasa's death. Simba goes into exile because why? Because he can't accept who he is and what he's done. And his return from exile is set in motion when he is confronted by the ghost of his father in the clouds. You remember this? James Earl Jones, sultry voice coming out from the clouds saying what? Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. I can't do it as well as him. Let's juxtapose this now with Frozen. So Elsa, she also goes into exile. But whereas Simba goes into exile because he can't accept who he is. Elsa goes into exile because others can't accept who she is. Okay, Elsa goes into exile. Um, well, Simba goes into exile because of shame and guilt, but ex- Elsa goes into exile because of what? Because of repression and oppression. When her community figures out she's got these magical ice witchy sorceress powers, they kick her out of the community. And so whereas the hero's journey for Simba meant overcoming his guilt so that he could accept his identity. The hero's journey for Elsa meant overcoming her repression so that others could accept her identity. All that to say Simba journeyed toward truly understanding and submitting to his identity, whereas Elsa journeyed toward truly discovering and then expressing her identity. And of course, the major difference here is what? The difference is in where we locate the source of identity and authority. In The Lion King, identity and authority come from where? Well, they come from outside, from Mufasa, from the Pride Lands, and they need to be accepted internally by Simba. Whereas in Frozen, identity and authority come from where? They come from inside. Elsa's the only one who knows who she really is, and it needs to be accepted externally. It really is amazing just how powerful and prevalent this story of self-discovery and expression have become. And you can boil down almost any animated movie over the last decade, and it's going to basically boil down to what? The same basic plot, right? It's somebody who longs to discover and express who they really are so they can live a truly authentic, unique life. So they have to throw off all the expectations of the community, especially the authority figures in the community, especially the parents, because they never understand so they can live their own unique lives. Moana, Turning Red, Luca, Brave, How to Train Your Dragon, Coco, Encanto, the list goes on and on and on and on. And as Alan Noble puts it, very perceptive observation, self-discovery is our contemporary hero's journey. 
switch it out of the realm of cinema to sports a little bit, maybe more familiar ground for some of you. Any of you remember uh, the, the famous Gatorade Be Like Mike commercial from the 90s? And you grew up on that? Have you seen the recent revision of it? It's really interesting. Watch this. Isn't this interesting? So whereas not so long ago, it inspired us to be told to be like who? Like Mike. Nowadays, it inspires us to be told to be like who? Be like you. Not Mike. What did Mike ever do anyways? Be like you, not Mike. Hmm. Now, to be clear, I'm, I'm not going to do some sort of a generational pylon where we just talk about all the problems with kids these days. Um, uh, as I've tried to make really clear over the years, I have no interest in this silly culture doom casting forecasting game where we all talk about how awful things are getting and how great things used to be because, you know, it's a very complicated thing. Like, are some things getting worse? Yeah. But are some things getting better? Yeah. How do you sort it all out? I, I, if you've got the equation, I would love to see it, but I really don't know how we net this whole thing out. And so like, I, I remember talking to my grandmother one time and we were sitting there watching TV and she got very upset because this very scandalous commercial came on. I believe it was a Victoria's Secret commercial. She was very upset by it. I was not, but she was very <laughs> upset by this commercial. And I'm not casting any, any stones here at my grandmother. I mean, I get it, y'all. We, we, we will all get to the point where you're watching TV and you think that I'm watching the NBA Finals with my little boys over the summer and I'm just trying to watch the game and all of a sudden some cologne commercial comes on. Have you seen these cologne commercials? They're very sensual. When did this happen? Next thing I know, it's some dude in a banana hammock jumping off a yacht into the Mediterranean Sea. I'm not trying to see this on a 60-inch screen. I'm just trying to watch the game with my kids, okay? So we will all be there. We will all get there. But I'm sitting there with my grandmother, and she sees this commercial, and she just shakes her head, and she goes, things just used to be so much better. And look, I, I understood where she was coming from, so I didn't say it out loud. But I did think to myself, counterpoint, slavery. <laughs> I'm sure this Victoria's Secret course was very bad, but slavery was pretty bad too. So look, you, you get it. This is not like a generational pylon, but rather it is an attempt to name this phenomenon in which we are all wrapped up, we are all complicit, in it, and it's a mix of good and bad. This phenomenon in which the location of identity and authority is increasingly moving within instead of without. This phenomenon that can go by many names, but Charles Taylor, he's a philosopher, he probably named it best when he called it the inward turn. It's a good little phrase. Right, the inward turn. And like I said, it's not all bad, so let's start out with the good. Right? Back to our text. Hopefully you still have your finger there in Genesis 12. When God calls Abram in Genesis 12, he calls him and he tells him to what? He starts with this very provocative command to Father Abraham. He says, listen, I want you to go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Now, you might read that and think, what's so provocative about this? doesn't strike us as being particularly provocative because we're modern people who don't really feel uh, any particular loyalty or obligation to stay in our father's house. Right? So, for example, show of hands, how many of you here today were born here? How many like lifelong, but, but, tea high, tea die? So we've got some of you. Right? So, so you can see most of us here today are not from here. A lot of us are from other places, 60% of us are from California. You know, like there are a lot of people here today <laughs> who are not from here. And so we're used to having very loose ties to people and places, but it was not so in the ancient world. 
Because your connection, your obligation to your father's house, to your family, to your tribe, to your people, it was the most sacred obligation you had. And so when God tells Abram to leave his father's house, this was a scandalous inversion of ancient notions of identity and authority because it was God telling Abram that his father, Terah, did not have the ultimate rights to his identity because his father was not his ultimate authority. And I think this is very important to note because I know it can be tempting to look at you know, the modern skepticism toward authority and all these different manifestations and think to yourself, you know, if kids these days, and you know you got something good coming when the phrase starts out with that, if kids these days would just submit to authority, stop asking all these stupid questions, then everything would be fine. And look, I get it. I'm not saying there's nothing true there, but we also need to realize, here's the deal, Christianity it's kind of a rebel's religion. Literally, everywhere you look in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you will find God challenging the authority of the alleged authorities. Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Jesus, Paul, they were all rebels. They're all rebels. The Boy Scouts in the Bible are always the bad guys. The rebels always tend to be the good guys. And I don't know that we can be faithful in a fallen world without having a little bit of rebel in us. It's a very Christian thing. And so as tempting as it might be to blame, you know, whatever, secularism for this modern skepticism of uh, traditional notions of identity and authority, I I think it's important to realize that actually God started it. God started it in Genesis 12 when he told Abram to leave his father's house. And so many good things have come from it. Just for example, we are now much more intolerant of unhealthy authority flexes, aren't we? We don't put up with unjust authority in the way we used to. Take an example of something as awful as domestic abuse. Now from time immemorial, men have behaved violently toward women. And that was just the way it was. Nobody questioned it. That was just, yeah, that was the way things worked. And nowadays, there are still far too many men who behave violently toward women. But we no longer just tolerate it culturally. We no longer just accept that that's the way it is. I mean, I don't know about you, but in the Fisher household, I am the far more likely victim of domestic abuse. (laughs) Not even close. Something never goes down the Fisher household, just know that it was Allison and it was probably deserved. And that's a great thing. And you get it in all sorts of ways. Our faith calls upon us to be a people who leave our father's house, who reject standard worldly notions of identity and authority. It's a good thing. But notice, while Abram is called to leave his father's house, he is not then called to just go and do whatever he wants. God doesn't say, Abram, I want you to leave your father's house so that you can head west, go discover and express yourself, young man. Blaze your own trail. Pick your own path. No. After telling Abram to leave his father's house, God says what there? We'll read it again. Go forth from your country and from your relatives from your father's house and go to the land that I'm going to show you. So Abram is not free to just go wherever he wants. He is not free to just blaze his own trail, ride his own destiny, because while God relentlessly opposes unhealthy impositions of authority upon us, and he calls upon us to do the same for others, God relentlessly asserts his authority over us. Or to put this very theologically, I hope you understand this, because this is top shelf theological stuff, it's hard to understand. God is kind of big on authority. 
God really doesn't mind flexing his authority over us. One of my favorite things in the Bible, to me it's one of the funniest things in the Bible, is when God just gives somebody a new name. You ever thought about how ridiculous that is? God does it all the time. He does it to Abram, changed his name to Abraham, to his wife Sarai, changed it to Sarah. Jesus does it to the disciples all the time. Can you imagine you're following Jesus? And Jesus is like, hey, what's your name, man? Me? My name's, my name's Austin, named after my great uncle who was a father of sorts to my father. Oh, that's a sweet story, Austin. Your name's Sparky now. Oh, Sparky? <laughs> Can I get another? I mean, good Lord, y'all. It is tough to think of a more dominant action than just giving somebody a new name. I want you to try it next time you're in a fight with your spouse, right? Just, oh, really, Lindsay? You're going to act like that? You are now Karen. That's who you are now. See how that goes. See how it goes. That's where that domestic abuse comes in, man. Just see how that goes. All that to say, uh, it's tough to think of a more dominant action than giving somebody a new name, but God does it all the time in the Bible because God does not have a problem asserting his authority over us. And let's just be honest here. Um, We modern people, we do not like that very much because we have left our father's house. So we like people telling us, who we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to go, because we have a very complicated relationship with authority, some of it for very good reason. And look, I I understand that. God understands that. In fact, God understands that better than you do. But God also understands that the most merciful thing that he could ever do for us is to assert his authority over us, because God knows that he's the only one who really knows who we really are. God knows that God understands your identity better than you do, right? God understands your identity better than you do because God made you. And this brings us to the not so happy consequences of this inward turn that all of us modern people have made in different measure. By way of summary, right? we've all made this inward turn in which we're increasingly resistant to external impositions of identity and authority because we're irresistibly drawn to this idea that we have a calling to discover and express ourselves so that we can live authentic and unique lives. And more than anything, we need to feel free to do this. We feel a spiritual moral, existential obligation to discover and express ourselves. And actually, y'all, we are freer to do this than any people who have ever lived. I mean, guys, for most of human history, do you know what you did for a living? Whatever dad did, that's what you did for a living. You imagine a couple hundred years ago, you're on a wagon going down the Oregon Trail and you tell your dad, dad, I don't think I feel called to be a farmer. I'm not a farmer on the inside. You know what your dad would have done? Well, he would have backslapped you off that wagon and let you dive dysentery there on the way of the Oregon Trail, man. That's what would have happened to you. You didn't have options. Ladies, you know what you did for a living for most of human history? Dishes in the laundry. That's what, that's what you did. That's what, those were your options. You could switch it up a little bit, do laundry one day, dishes the other day, but those were your only options. And nowadays, we can still do those things, but those aren't the only things that we have to do because we have established this unmatched, never before seen in human history freedom to discover and express ourselves. Y'all, we have done it. We are free. We are freer than any people have ever been to express ourselves, which brings us to a very important question. Namely, how's it going? It's not, no. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing, isn't it? 
What I think we're discovering is that living our lives as if our central mandate in life is to discover and express ourselves is profoundly exhausting. Anybody else? School has not even started yet, y'all. Anybody just, it's exhausting. Because while it's nice to have the freedom to leave your father's house, what I think we're discovering is that this freedom is a lot more complicated than we thought it was. And to be more specific, what I think we're discovering is that we are becoming exhausted with creating our own identities and being our own authorities all the time. One of the saddest statistics that I have come across, and I look at a lot of statistics, is that over 40% of high school seniors now say that they find it hard to have hope for the world. Think about that. 40% of 18-year-olds said they find it hard to have hope for the world. Isn't that crazy? And we all know that it's it's old people who are supposed to be pessimistic about the world, right? Not young people whose body parts all work the way they're supposed to. How are these 18 year olds gonna feel when they're waking up seven times a night to pee? It gets worse. <laughs> I worry about them. And so now I wanna couple that with another unexpectedly related statistic. I love this, this is fun. So back in the 1880s, almost half of the baby boys who were born received one of the 10 most common names. So in other words, if you were born in 1880 and you were a little boy, your name was what? John or Henry. Those were, like, those, those were the only two names that everybody had. But over the last 150 years, it has become less and less common to have a common name. So much so that now, only 5% of newborn baby boys have one of the 10 most common names. Isn't that interesting? Now, social psychologist Jean Twenge, she puts it this way in her book, Generations. She says, parents no longer worry about giving their child a name that is too unusual, but worry about giving their child a name that is too common. Isn't that interesting? And why do you think that is? Well, it's because we've all become wrapped up in this idea that our mission in life is to live singular, unique lives. Now, I know I'm treading on thin ice here, okay? I know better than to criticize parents for what they name their children. Though, wouldn't it be funny if I did that at baby dedication? And next up, we have trying too hard Williams. Come on down. Be dedicated to the Lord, young man. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. But y'all, if we give our kids these ridiculously unique names, I'm just saying we should perhaps not be surprised if they then live their lives under the overwhelming pressure to live up to the uniqueness of their very unique name by being incredibly unique people who are living singular, unique lives. Like, any of y'all remember Frank Zappa? Show of hands, anybody remember Zappa? Yeah, everybody who just put their hand up definitely did mushrooms in the 70s, just so y'all know. Anybody <laughs> who's listening to Zappa, they were hitting something. He was this virtuoso rock musician, you know, super creative guy, and he named his oldest daughter Moon Unit. <laughs> Moon, I want to illustrate you, Moon Unit, Moon Unit. Now, y'all, I am sure, you know what, that he just wanted to give his baby girl a sweet, special name. But sweet baby Jesus, how does anybody live up to the name Moon Unit? How do you live up to that? Can you imagine her introducing herself at parties? Hey, what's your name? Oh, well, my name's Moon Unit. <laughs> oh, 
what do you do for a living, moon unit? I'm a teacher. Oh, your dad must be very disappointed in you. Teacher, no wonder kids are so depressed, y'all. They're trying to live up to these names. Nobody can live up to moon unit. We're going to continue to unpack some of this stuff over the course of the series, this uh, tangled relationship between identity and authority and freedom and belonging and uniqueness and authenticity that we are all kind of wrapped up in in the modern world. But I want to end this morning with a quote from Rowan Williams. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the day and a very wise fellow. Listen to this. He says, you have an identity, not because you've invented one or because you have a little hardcore of selfhood that is unchanged, but because you have a witness of who you are. So what you don't understand or see, the little bits of yourself that you can't pull together in a convincing story are all held in a single gaze of love. I want you to listen to this part. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are. You don't have to settle the absolute truth of your history and your story because in the eyes of the presence that never goes away, all that you have been and are is still present and real. It is held together in that unifying gaze. So in other words, you can relieve yourself of the burden of creating and discovering and then endlessly expressing your endlessly unique identity because God has already given you all the identity that you could ever need because God has given you a story, not just any story, the most true, good, and beautiful story that's ever been told. You, you are a beloved son or daughter of the living and infinite God. Your destiny is in his hands. Your mission in life is not to discover and express yourself as defined by yourself, but rather your mission in life is to participate in this cosmic rebellion against the forces of sin, suffering, and death by enjoying this broken but very good world that God has made and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what you're here for. And as such, freedom, real freedom, true freedom, it is not being true to yourself as defined by yourself and only being true to God if God agrees to be true to yourself as defined by yourself. Rather, true freedom is being true to the God who made you, the God whose you are, the God who understands who you are even better than you ever could or would. And if that sounds, okay, like if that sounds a little repressive and aggressive to your modern ears, I get it. It sounds that way to mine too. But y'all, I, I for one, for whatever it's worth, I am so tired of creating my own identity. I'm tired of being the arbiter of my own authority all the time. I am tired of being the author of my own story. And I think that there's a better way. I know that there's a better way. And it all starts with this very good news that I am not my own and I do not belong to myself. You You are not your own, and you do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ, and that is very good news. All right, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not and could never deserve to be here. We are here because and only because a good and gracious God has decided to host us one more day in his world. And so we pause and we say thank you for that and then we come before you today and we confess that 
Well, you know, we've left our father's house and there's some good in that, but God, we also really have struggled learning how to belong out there outside of our father's house. We feel this endless pressure to discover and express ourselves, to live authentic lives, not tethered to any kind of real authority outside of ourselves. And God, it's not the way we were created and it's very exhausting. It's not the way it's meant to be. And so I pray, God, that this morning and then in the weeks to come, you would help us see and understand why belonging to you and belonging to each other is the best news that we could ever hope for. We pray that you'd move in these moments to help a lot of us who have really just belonged to ourselves for a long time see that there's a better way. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.